thank you for the great welcome and thank you for uh, your presence here, especially in light of uh, cancellations, NBA season suspended, and uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is all online, and that's just the two that are more recent, and uh, there will be more, I'm sure. Um, it's a difficult issue in that, you know, you want to, you want to be uh, cautious without crazy, and the crazy is only perceived on the other side when it either hasn't gone as bad as you'd thought it had or you overreacted on the, uh, before it happened, right? And you just don't know. Um, uh, th there are some precedents. Uh, some of you may have read uh, uh, about Martin Luther, his uh, letter that he wrote in 1527. Uh, Wittenberg, where the 95 Theses were posted in October 31, 1517, a decade later, the city was overcome with a plague. And um, Luther uh, was there, and uh, he lived in and through it. And a pastor asked him, what do, what do we do? Uh, how do we respond? Uh, it is, uh, and, and he wrote a response. He wrote a letter to uh, the pastor, Johann uh, Huss. And uh, it, it would be worth your while to read. Um, uh, another, 1854, a cholera outbreak uh, in England. Uh, Charles Spurgeon ministered in and through that. Um, so it, it, it's not as if it hasn't happened. I think uh, a part of what's happened, though, for us in this day, and, and it's just the way it is, and that is um, we've, we've become inoculated to death. We've become inoculated to illness. We've become inoculated to sickness and suffering, generally speaking. And, um, and so when it does happen, we hardly know what to do with it. And, and it is, it's part of life in a fallen world. So that's why I'm saying, uh, you know, l let's be cautious without being crazy. And, um, you know, for me in my role, there, there's another aspect of it as well. And it's one thing for yourself and knowing what you are able to live with yourself uh, and risks you might take, risks you might, might not take. But then, you know, we're also called, commanded to love others, love God, love others. And how then do we love others? And that's then where you begin to think about family. You begin to think about a church family. Uh, which is localized, uh, and then you begin to think about, in my role, sort of a, a denominational setting in that you think about convening people to flying in from various places to a certain location. Do you still do that uh, sort of thing? Um, and so you just think about various levels and layers. Um, and you also realize that you're probably not going to make a good decision if, in fact, on the one side, it's the, the, the stoic, you know, who cares, going to run into the face of a train sort of thing. But on the other side, there are those that, that, that live more with fear. And at the end of the day, we as leaders called to shepherd God's people ought not to be at either extreme of those. And so we pray for wisdom as we seek to live faithfully in the midst of this uh, coronavirus and, and what it entails. Uh, so you know, in the uh, Middle Ages, um, with the plague, 14th century, etc., this is what they li they lived with death. They lived with the reality of death, and that, friends, is the context in which the doctrine of justification by faith was so precious. Because they were literally not just fearful of death and the afterlife; they were they were fearful of even waking up in the morning physically. And that, that carried with it certain implications. And that then led to the accoutrements of the Roman Catholic Church, from which then Luther and the Reformers pulled away. And, and, um, but the reality of, of, of death, it is still real. It is still real, friends. And uh, so we're reminded of that.
Well, uh, we're going to spend our time uh, next uh, today and tomorrow on the, the doctrine of the scriptures and, and just uh, look at a number of different things. Some of it, we're, we're going to do a number of things. Some of the stuff, uh, you're, you're maybe new, new stuff. Some of it you may learn. Some of it you may be reminded of. And that's not a bad thing ever. Sometimes I think we, we traffic in the scriptures. We traffic with the text, in the text. And sometimes it can become overly familiar. That's a good thing. Familiar is good, overly familiar is not. Uh, we, we, we can have then a tendency to uh, um, sort of gloss over things or step over things or, or be very committed to understanding it for the sake of others, not ourselves. And um, um, w- one of the things I, I, I won't forget uh, is uh, Calvin, uh, when he exhorted those that were preaching, he said, if, if in fact you have not applied that text that you're preaching on Sunday, if you've not first applied that to yourself, it's better that you fall on the steps on your way up to preach that message and break your neck than to preach that message not having preached it to yourself. And so because of the, the fact that we traffic in the scriptures, uh, we're thinking often of, of, of applying it elsewhere and the temptation then is, is to think that, that, that knowing it or preparing it for a message equates with living it and submitting to it and trusting it, etc. And it, it's just not the way it is. It, it's not that way. We're, and then what happens is there's a, a bifurcation between um, my role as the pastor teacher in whatever capacity that is and my role as an adopted son or daughter living faithfully under the word of God. I don't stand on top of it, but I live under it like everybody else does. And, and this, I think, is where uh, I'm not saying anything that's, that hasn't been public. This is part of the temptation of the celebrity pastor. And friends, the celebrity pastor does not have to be a pastor of 5,000 member church. It can be a 50, 15. Uh, the, the heart, the heart is, a, is an idol-making factory. And, and the temptations are to become either exceptional, that we're the exception, or entitlement. You know, we're, we're entitled to certain exceptions, you know, sort of thing. And, you know, I would say this uh, as lovingly as I could. If that ever happens and someone, someone talks to you about that and it proves to be true, step away for a season. You know, as much as... as, much as whatever. I mean, I, I, I think of over a decade ago when John Piper realized that himself. His description was there were several species of pride in my heart. And you remember, he stepped away. Now, not, ev- not all of us, probably none of us could have the liberty of stepping away for three months, right? Um, but, but I would say this, how many of us, if we did get the opportunity to step away for three months, would do what, what he did? That is t- to attempt to dissect a heart, to discern, discern various species of sin. Who would spend time doing that? And, and, and that, friends, is, is, is what the Bible does for us. It's the mirror uh, in our lives. So we're going we're gonna to do a number of different things. Some of it's going to be some exercises around the tables. We're going to talk about some things, read some scripture, because I, I want us to wrestle with, this is what you ask, you, this is what you ask people to do, right? In, in Bible studies and local churches, etc. Now you get to do it, right? You get to be one of the participants in this. And some of it is, is, you know, what has God said and what does that mean? What is, and the, another, another aspect is, uh, and this now is a, a sort of, a, this is a lie. This is, this is, has God really said sort of thing? 
And how does that manifest today? What are some of the, the, the ways in which that is happening today? So we'll talk about some of these things and, and, um, and do some application and do some wrestling with some things, and that, that's what uh, we'll do this day. Um, here's uh, Article 2 in our Statement of Faith. I would like for us to uh, profess this together. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises." Summary truth of the Bible, God's gospel is authoritatively revealed in the scriptures. Now let me point out one thing before moving on to just looking at a couple of resources. And that is, notice how we end. Typically statements of faith do not have an, a therefore. I mean, statements of faith, is, it's, it's, it's a confession, it's a creed, it's something that we profess, we believe. That's why you don't include statements of we do not believe. Right? It's a statement of belief, we believe. Um, now, there are some statements or confessions that are we affirm, we deny. We affirm, we deny, right? Then th 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 there's a place for that as well. Uh, confessions, typically, you confess what you believe, not what you don't believe. In our statement of faith, there are two statements of negation. That is a not statement. I won't tell you where they are. You can talk to me uh, during a break, and if you know where they are, um, that would be fine. Um, but there are, there are two. But the other thing that's unique here is there's a therefore. Typically, Typically, statements that are orthodox statements, you don't include orthopraxy statements. That is, they're statements of profession. And for us, the reason that this was included in 2008, uh, that was affirmed by the conference, 86% um, of the conference, is, is that, you know, it's one thing to affirm as evangelicals our, our, our affirmation of the uh, authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, all that of the Bible. It's another thing to then, so what? And we were convinced that it was pretty critical for us who affirm the authority of the Bible and, and have probably a half a dozen Bibles in our homes or on our, on our shelves in our offices that often uh, prove to be more uh, convenient as a coffee coaster, as a living and abiding active word of God. There was an important aspect to adding the therefore. And, and what we have said here is really one of the summary statements from the, the, uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, written in 1978, Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It's still a, a standard. Uh, it's become a pretty much a, a classic uh, of an evangelical affirmation of the, the biblical inerrancy, what it, what it entails. That was 1978. And there was a summarizing statement to that. And we picked it up and uh, gladly plagiarized. Not exactly, but we're giving credit. But it was important. That is to say, because of we affirm the Bible, that it, what it is, therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches. It's to be obeyed in all that it requires. And it's to be trusted in all that it promises. So there's an application. There is, an, there is a therefore. There is an implication to affir affirming what the Bible is. The, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. There are implications. And friends, most of us here in this room have been granted a privilege of, of, of being in the Word, of being under the Word, of, of imparting that Word to God's people. That is no small privilege. 
Here are just a few works that I wanted to draw to your attention, and they're just some some standard classic ones that I want to just point out. Um, The first one, Herman Bavinck, Reformed Dogmatics. It's an older work. Um, They're not, by the way, they don't have to be recent in order to be good. Okay, we're tracking. All right, just want to make sure. Um, But Herman Bavinck is a 19th century, uh, very gifted uh, theologian. Um, and, and, and does some excellent work uh, on a variety of issues in a variety of ways. But here he does, a, I think, an excellent work on the, on the doctrine of the scriptures. D.A. Carson, uh, The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. This is an edited work of about 1,200 pages. Anyone have this book? It's worthwhile as an encyclopedic uh, sort of resource and tool. It deals with, with uh, contemporary issues um, f- uh, and, and all kinds of different issues. Uh, w- uh, and it's, it's extremely helpful. It's one of those that would be worth your while probably to have on your shelf. Not everybody needs it on their shelf, but some do need to have it on their shelves. Uh, but it is, it is uh, probably one of the best books on the, on the issue uh, these days. Another one, Kevin DeYoung, Taking God at His Word, Why the Bible is Noble, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You and Me. Um, that's a small book. It's worthwhile to consider that one to read as elders. So for, for those of you that are pastors, if, how many elders are here? Okay, we've got a few. Um, um, this, this is a good one. It's, it's, it's brief. It's, um, it's, yeah, right. I know you are too. Uh, non-vocational elders. Non-vocational, is that better? Non-vocational elders. Elder, pastor, overseer. Yep, I'm with you. We're, they were tracking. They were tracking. Um, yeah, we think the same way. I just, I didn't state it all that way. Um, but nonetheless, I corrected it. It's worthwhile. It's a, it's a good little read. Uh, John Feinberg, Light in the Dark Place, The Doctrine of Scripture. This is another, you can see it's 2018. Part of the Foundations of Evangelical Theology series published by Crossway. They've got a number of very good uh, books in that series. Uh, one on Christology came out in 2016, written by Stephen Wellham, God the Son, uh, the Doctrine of the Incarnation, which is another very good one. But John Feinberg uh, teaches at Trinity. Uh, just so you know, Carson uh, is uh, emeritus at Trinity. Uh, John Feinberg uh, is uh, still teaching at Trinity. Uh, and just so you know, uh, the, of, of the about 60-some signers of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, 17 had some connections with Trinity. So all that to say, this, this, matter, this doctrine matters. The, the, the scriptures matter. The doctrine of inerrancy matter. Uh, it matters, uh, uh, not just to the free church, but to our seminary, our, our college, our seminary as well. Um, John Frame, The Doctrine of the Word of God, uh, another uh, very helpful one. John Frame has done some good work. Stephen Nichols, Eric Brandt, Ancient Word, Changing Words, The Doctrine of Scripture in a Modern Age. And what they do is they look at some of the terms that have been used uh, and, and they, they articulate it. They, they have a chapter on inerrancy. They have a chapter on infallibility. They have ch- various chapters on different aspects of what we affirm when we affirm the, uh, the, the authority of the Bible. And J.I. Packer, Fundamentalism, the Word of God, 1958. That's a, that, that's, that's a classic book. Uh, if, if you haven't read it, again, it's, it's, it's dated previous generation, but it, it's ongoing uh, with significance. Um, and, and it's not real. It's not real long. Uh, maybe 150 pages. 200, not even maybe 150, 175 pages. But it's it's very good. You have it on your shelf yet, or do you have to get rid of it? Okay, good deal. That means something because you've had to call your library. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> got rid of everything else but the library. Yeah, right. Thankfully, Ruth is with him. 
Uh, here are three that I would suggest that you consider. Uh, John Piper has done a three-part series, A Peculiar Glory, How the Christian Scriptures Reveal Their Complete Truthfulness. And following that, the next year, 2017, reading the Bible supernaturally, seeing and savoring the glory of God in Scripture, and then, and then expository exaltation, Christian preaching as worship. That, those three volumes are, I, I, would, I would challenge you to consider that in a year. So this, your reading project for the, the, the coming year will be reading those three volumes. And it's not that John has everything to say about this. I mean, it, it, he doesn't. But what he says is typically helpful, um, and he's lived, you know, both the pastor a scholar sort of uh, uh, the intersection of those two uh, very well uh, and, and preached faithfully for 30 years in the context of, a, of the same local church. Those three volumes are, are worthwhile to consider. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, misspelling, uh, knowing scripture, that's a, that's a classic uh, that's, that's I think helpful. Timothy Ward, words of life, scripture is a living and active word of God. Uh, another very helpful one B.B. Um, Warfield, uh, Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, um, and this is, this is the public publication date, though it was written before then, and uh, he would be known as one of the Princetonians, Hodge and Warfield, right? You know, the, the, the Princetonians that would have affirmed uh, the uh, authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, and there is a Princetonian um, sort of theory such that, that, that inerrancy was created by the Princetonians, Hodge and Warfield. It's not true, but there is a narrative that's out there to that effect. William Whitaker, anyone heard of William Whitaker? Reformation. Uh, uh, William Whitaker, the disputations of Hol on Holy Scripture, um, he was responding to some of the Roman Catholic uh, per 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 perspective on the, on the, on the Scriptures. And, and it, is, it is really, um, it's masterfully done. John Woodbridge would say, our church historian at Trinity Divinity School, he would say that, that and he's you know, a church historian and, and, and the scriptures are critical, uh, the, uh, one of his uh, areas of study, he would say that Whitaker was, uh, he is one of the, the, the key people throughout the last 2,000 years to address, respond to some of the questions uh, on the uh, inerrancy and authority of the Bible. Uh, I, I, I think he's right. Uh, how, how could I disagree with him? But nonetheless, I still think he's, he's right. Uh, Matthew Barrett, this one just came out, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. His point is, uh, it was an argument made years ago um, in uh, Evangelical Affirmations. If you remember that, that book, there was a conference on Evangelical Affirmations. You might even remember that. We're old enough to remember that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, was held at <laughs> it was held at Trinity, um, and there was a book that followed that, and... and um, uh, I, I, it, was, it was very helpful, um, uh, I think invaluable, and one of the, one of the uh, chapters was uh, that Jesus, uh, who, who Jesus is, how we understand Christology is, is related to or foundational to how we understand Bibliology. Uh, in other words, who Christ is and how Christ understood the Scriptures is foundational for how we understand the Scriptures. And... Um, I, I think there's truth. This is just, it just came out uh, two weeks ago. It's in the, it's in the uh, series edited by Don Carson, um, New Studies in Biblical Theology. If you're following that series, uh, this is, I think, the 49th uh, volume in that series, if you're keeping up. Um, but it's, it's very helpful. And then let me just add a couple of uh, these last two um, that I thought uh, were helpful. One is uh, Carson, you know, who's done so much thinking on this, Subtle Ways to Abandon the Authority of Scripture in Our Lives. Anyone remember reading that one? Well, you got the link, um, and so you can, you can get it when you get the notes. 
Uh, you can look at it when you get the notes. But his point is this, that there are, amongst evangelicals, amongst those of us that affirm uh, uh, the, the authority of the Bible, there are some subtle ways that we undermine the authority of the Bible. And I would say, we're going to talk about um, what I call a progressive evangelical hermeneutic that I think reinterprets, ends up with a reinterpretation of, of the church's understanding of the Bible throughout history and, 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 and why that is. Uh, we'll talk about some of that, but he talks about some subtle ways. Um, and, but that's just your interpretation. Uh, that's another one that just, just happened recently. Um, anyone read that one? You did. Paulo did. I know that. Did you read it? Did you find it helpful? Yeah, see, I would, I, I, I would let me commend you on this one. I think that if, if you're wrestling, not that you're wrestling, but if, but if, you're, if you have people that are, that are thinking about these issues, and if you've got someone that's 35 or younger, they are, um, the temptation is to move in this way. That, that's one of the prevailing, prevailing uh, notions of how we approach the Scriptures. And what he does is he picks up a, a Facebook post uh, someone who's uh, came out as LGBTQIA affirming. He's not that, but he is affirming. Um, and, and he goes through this great big long uh, explanation. Um, and so Don picked up the whole Facebook post and then commented on it. It's very insightful. Paula, what would you say about it? Oh, you didn't? I sent it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's excellent. Um, and there's a whole lot more I could say about that story. I won't. But I, I commend it to you because it, it, it's very helpful. And then Jen Wilkin, God will not speak to you through skywriting. Her point is um, y y you don't need special revelation. We've got it. We've got it. And, and this, this, I think, is another one of those, those contemporary pressing day kinds of issues that, that we want something more. That for some reason, for some reason, the Bible is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. So that we need something personal. We need something private. We need something beyond what God has revealed in the Bible. Why is that? What is, the, what is pressing people to move in that direction? Is it just a perpetual reality of, of the, the, the challenges of needing something more? Is it, is it that we don't trust God fully with what he has disclosed? Is it because we, we, we are expecting that we are more in the new heavens and the new earth than we really are? I think all of those things have impacted some of, some of this push in this, in this particular direction. And, and Jen uh, rightly responds, uh, no, we, God's not going to speak to us in that way. Um, and and it, was, it was quite helpful. Um, here are the, uh, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to take just a few minutes around your table. I'm gonna, I'll go through these ten. These are the ten, by the way, that Don listed. This, these are the ways, uh, just a brief summary, a brief, uh, the, or the ways, that the subtle ways to abandon the authority of Scripture in our lives. Uh, first, he says, an appeal to selective evidence. You know, you know, inevitably, uh, every one of us can be selective and validate our point, right? It, it, and Scripture used to, in hermeneutics class, the professor used to say, Scripture becomes a wax nose. That is, you can form and shape it, you know, any way you really want. 
Um, and, and so that, that's one. A second, a heart embarrassment before the text. In other words, we're, we're just sort of, we're sort of embarrassed. I mean, you think about this. You think about, uh, especially when, when, when those, of, those of you, those of us that are committed to expository preaching, it forces us to deal with these issues, the lectio continua, uh, continuous preaching of the text. Uh, um, by the way, Huldrych Zwingli was one of the first in 1519 to begin preaching at Matthew 1, 1, and continuing on. Prior to that, it hadn't really been, hap- it, well, I mean, uh, for, for, for centuries, through the Middle Ages, it had moved to more lectionary format, and it had uh, uh, more, more the, the, the lectionary format that would be followed. Huldrych Zwingli, Genevan reformer, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, preaching through. So the Lectia Continua, which became reformational, right? And it became what's for most of us uh, evangelicals as well, that it, it's expositional. It, that's just how, how it's done. But I, but, but I ask this. Um, so how many of us, when we are preaching certain things, whether it's on Matthew 19 and divorce, whether it's, you know, these kinds of things, how many of us duck or speak with a hand over your mouth or give 101 concessions or caveats. Friends, been there, done that. Around certain people, you know what? You're going to, well, yeah. Wow, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. We, we, need, we need convictional kindness. Convictional kindness. Kindness for sure, but not kindness that compromises conviction and, and certainly not conviction that is mean. Now, how's that defined today? That's fair. I mean, that's, that's fair, but convictional kindness. And, and so heart embarrassment before the text. Third, publishing ventures that legitimate what God condemns. The point that he's making here is this. How in the world, how in the world do you have a multiple views on homosexuality? Really? Or how about multiple views on hell? Now, do you put those two in the same category as multiple views on the tribulation? Are they in the same category? But you see what happens is, is all, all they're wanting is just a place at the table. It, it, it becomes an option. It becomes a, it becomes a viable option. And friends, I'm hearing that more regularly with the doctrine of annihilationalism. Uh, and I do see some of these uh, in our, there's just one recently, uh, a retired pastor, free church pastor, uh, who when one reaches that category, we ask them to reaffirm the statement of faith without mental reservation one more time and he replied back with integrity and said, I can't. I, I, don't, I don't affirm eternal conscious punishment. So we studied the issue for seven months, six months, um, and a um, series of questions that I sent to him for, to work through and a series of articles and essays and a host of things. And uh, at the end of the day, he said, sorry, I can't. Didn't say sorry, just said I can't. Um, I was sorry. I was sorry that he couldn't. Um, but what he was asking was, um, can't, can't it just be an option? Can't it just be an option? And you see, that's what begins to happen. Um, and and I, I'm, re- I'm hearing that more and more. And, and so a publishing venture that legitimate what God condemns. The art of imperious ignorance. What this one is, um, and you'll have to read the article. It's uh, Michael Ovi. Uh, in fact, I'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, Michael Ovi talked about the art of imperious ignorance, and that is to say, my ignorance, I make an absolute and demand it of you too. That is to say, because, because I, I really don't know what this text means, um, and because there are various interpretations of this text, uh, nobody can be definitive about it, and neither can you. 
You see where that goes? Wow. Uh, and we'll look at that further tomorrow, but that's the art of imperious ignorance. Uh, fifth, allowing uh, the categories of systematic theology to domesticate what Scripture says. Uh, six, too little reading, especially the reading of older commentaries and theological works. Uh, you know, some of that, it's not that the older works got everything right, but they got different things wrong. So it gives some clarity. It blows away some contemporary fog is what ends up happening. You know, when we are so close to something, and especially my age, right, you, know, so see, you kind of become schizophrenic almost, you know, which way? Oh, near, far, near, far. But if you're too close to the mirror, it's blurry, right? So what you need to do is step back a little bit, and, it, and then it, it, it becomes clearer, right? And sometimes that's what, what, what older works do for us. When we, are, when we are too close to something, we are proverbially the, the frog in the kettle. We, we don't know what we don't know. But when we are able to step back and to, to read what God has done, same scriptures, right? But to, but to read how others have, have had to wrestle with issues in their day, it clarifies some things for us. And, you know, it also then enables us to come back to better understand and, and to uh, integrate other pieces that enable us to respond, I think, more faithfully today than were we uh, ignorant or unaware of things that have, that have happened earlier. Uh, seven, the failure to be bound by both the formal principle and the material principle. Hmm. I'm going to test you. Come on, Benjamin, what are they? Since you picked on me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about talking to your other elder friend? Oh, the formal principle from the Reformation is the authority of the Word of God, sola scriptura. That's the formal principle. The material principle is, what's the, what's the key doctrine of the Reformation? Justification by faith. It's the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. And so uh, that, that is the formal and that is the material. Eight, undisciplined passion for merely technical or unhealthy suspicion of the technical. Either way. Either way. In other words, uh, we're going to become so esoteric that, you know, we're just speaking right over people. Or anything in which we're trying to articulate or spell out nuances at all, oh, come on, give it up, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, nine, undisciplined confidence in contemporary phil philosophical ad agendas. Elevation of human reason or whatever. And anything that reduces our trembling before the word of God. So take a few moments, and whether it's from this list or not, what are some subtle ways you would have experienced undermining or abandoning? Uh, we don't have to say abandon, but undermining. What are some of the challenges that you face in the, in, in the local church where you serve? So take just a few minutes. Talk about some of those things. And it's, maybe it's in your own life. Maybe it's the life of the, those that you're serving. Maybe it's... So just take a few minutes. What are some subtle ways to abandon or undermine the authority of Scripture in our lives. If you want to cheat, go ahead. That's, that's fine, but, just, but, but flesh it out. Take just a few minutes. I won't let you read that yet, John. Okay, uh, pull your thoughts back. Uh, just th throw out a couple. Did, you, did everybody just simply agree, or did you come up with a different one, or... 
Uh, it wasn't a lot of time, uh, but it gets you thinking, and that's what I want to do because we've got we've got dinner tonight, and part of the part of the part of what we do here is, and especially uh, um, you know those that come together, we talk about these things. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity to do that, um, and there, it wasn't a lot of time. Uh, and everybody didn't get to share. And we'll do this again some other times. And everybody won't get to share, just so you know. Um, but some will. And maybe we can take turns so that by the end, everyone will. Um, but there's some... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sermon series titles can dictate content of sermons. So they can eclipse what's actually in the text. But in the back of my mind, it's got to fit my sermon series. And I seem to trust it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good. Sounds like you're a homiletician or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the syllogism doesn't work. I mean, on one hand, on the one hand, it does, but but biblically, it doesn't hold water. Yeah. Any other? Yeah. Unhitch, being unhitched from the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, but that was his language of being unhitched. We'll talk about one of the. One of the historical challenges of that, uh, and in fact, who might remember the, the earlier heresy of unhitching, literally unhitching the old from the new? Anyone remember? Yeah. And so we'll talk about that. Uh, that that'll come up. There's a, there's, I'm, I'm just going to do a, a quick uh, overview of some of those key issues in which Scripture has been undermined. That's one of them. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And so, some of it, too, then, is understanding how do you put the testaments together? You know, it, 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 one option is Jan Hitchett, right? Well, that's not, and, and it has been offered. That has been proffered in the past. It's not the right way. But then you've got the Lutherans. You've got law versus gospel. That's another way, right? Uh, I don't think many of us will actually do it that way. And I saw that. And <laughs> yes, Mike, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's 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 it's 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 big. Those are those are legitimate kinds of questions, um, and and most of those are not wanting to deny one or the other. It's how do we put the testaments together? Uh, one Bible, two testaments, one Bible, and how do we do that? Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's move on. Uh, here's uh, what what uh, here's the conclusion. What Carson uh, said in this article that is he focused on negative, right? But I would be making a serious mistake if I did not draw attention to the fact that the list of warnings and dangers, an essentially negative list, implicitly invites us to a list of positive correlatives. For example, the first instance of subtle ways to trim the authority of Scripture was an appeal to selective evidence, which implicitly calls us to, to be as comprehensive as possible when we draw our theological and pastoral conclusions about what the Bible is saying on this or that point. If I could add, you know, when I was starting in ministry, starting preaching, I was, maybe overstated some, but I was, I was fearful of taking too much text. 
in any given sermon because I couldn't give it the, I, the due diligence that it needed. I could handle about three verses of study and commentary reading and all this. It's like, and you're wanting me to do a whole pericope on that thing? Really? I mean, it was just, it was daunting to me. Uh, you know, and then, you know, thankfully it's not, not dependent completely on me. You know what I'm saying? God's word will go forth and thanks be to God, it's true. But there was, there was that concern of, I can't manage that much sort of thing. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a challenge. It was a challenge for me. It still is. Um, he also continues, if, if heart embarrassment before this or that text, the second example, it re- reduces the authority of Scripture in my life, a hearty resolve to align my empathies and will with the lines of Scripture until I see more clearly how God looks at things from his sovereign and omniscient angle will mean that I offer fewer apologies for the Bible while spending more time making its stances coherent to a generation that finds the Bible profoundly foreign to contemporary axioms. It would be a godly exercise to work through all ten of the points so as to make clear what the positive correlative is in each case. I think it's a, it's a, helpful, a helpful exercise. Uh, by the way, this is a brand, brand spanking new book. Uh, it came out about three weeks ago. Um, it probably will not be of surprise to some of you that have followed sort of the discussion and the debate over the past many years. 19, early 1990s, uh, open theism. Open theism is a view that says God does not know the future exhaustively. Uh, he, he so values human freedom. And if, freedom, if, if human beings are truly free, then, he, then the future must be open because he doesn't know um, it's happening uh, with human beings as it's being lived out, and, and Greg Boyd is one of those proponents. We don't hear a lot about open theism anymore, but one of the, one of the critical issues is this. If in, fact, if, in fact, open theism is what they claim it to be, that is to say that human beings cannot be uh, uh, um, led, guided, prompted, uh, etc., and yet still being who they are, uh, then what does that do to the doctrine of inerrancy? It seems to me that it, 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 it doesn't completely put it up for grabs, but what's your guarantee that the Bible's going to end up being inerrant if, in fact, if in fact it's, it, it's, it's not prompted, guided by the God the Holy Spirit? There really isn't. And some of you might remember, or at least might remember hearing, that in the Evangelical Theological Society, there was um, a... Trial, really, there was a disciplinary uh, with Clark Pinnock and John Sanders, who were members of the ETS, and um, they were called to account on their view of God and the scriptures. ETS had one statement uh, in their confession, and that was a statement on the inerrancy of the Bible. Uh, that was the only means then by which, uh, and it was through this experience that they also then added a second that is a belief in the doctrine of the Trinity, because they came to realize that. Jehovah's Witnesses could affirm the inerrancy of the Bible. They don't fit. Um, but anyway, through this, it's the inerrancy of the Scriptures and, and, the, and the affirming the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, John Sanders and Clark Pinnock backed off some. I'm not sure that their writings, they didn't retract their writings. They, um, and Clark Pinnock is now, I believe, with the Lord. Um, that's a, something we could talk about. But I, I, I think he was... Converted uh, from all I know. I don't, didn't know him personally. I met him, but I didn't know him personally reading his stuff. I think he was, he was wrong in a lot of areas. Um, but uh, nonetheless, and then John Sanders you know, continued to, you know, the, the open, the risky view of God as opposed to the risk-free view of God. He's written a book on that. Well, Greg Boyd is one of these. And here's what he's just come out with, this new book, Inspired Imperfection, How the Bible's Problems Enhance Its Divine Authority. 
Here's the explanation. In Inspired Imperfection, Gregory A. Boyd adds another counterintuitive and provocative thesis to his corpus. While conservative scholars and pastors have struggled for years to show that the Bible is without errors, Boyd considers this a fool's errand. Instead, he says, we should embrace the mistakes and contradictions in Scripture, for they show that God chose to use fallible humans to communicate timeless truths. Just as God ultimately came to save humanity in the form of a human, God chose to impart truth through the imperfect medium of human writing. Instead of the Bible's imperfections being a reason to attack its veracity, its truthfulness, these problems actually support the trustworthiness of Christian Scripture. Inspired imperfection is required reading for anyone who's questioned the Bible because of its contradictions. How in the world do you make sense of the Bible at all? I, I, I have no clue. I really have no clue. You want to talk about a fool's errand? And I don't say that disparagingly. Uh, the reason I share this with you, because it, it's new, right? But the second thing is there are going to be those that are going to be reading it. You know why? Because, because they're, they're encountered with some of these contradictions. They're encountering some of these, these questions. And they're going to Google it. You know what's going to come up? It'll be one of them. They'll end up coming up. And this is what they're going to be influenced by. Wow, okay, yeah, it makes sense and, and that sort of thing. So um, it's just important to understand that, that this, is, this is one that's come out. This is, this is uh, Greg Boyd's prayer. My sincere prayer, uh, this is in his book. It's in the book, by the way. My sincere prayer is that this book will help readers con uh, confidently embrace the divine inspiration of all Scripture and to see why this traditional belief is not threatened by historical critical scholarship and the many problems in Scripture it is unearthed. Perhaps even more importantly, my prayer is that this book helps readers see how the crucified Christ permeates all of Scripture, including its errors, contradictions, inaccuracies, and morally offensive material. So that's why I think it's important for us to know that this has just recently been published and, and it will... Uh, uh, I'm not suggesting you buy it. <laughs> I'll buy it on our behalf, which I already have. Um, but it's just, it just to be aware of it. Um, you know, I, I, I've been struck. When I think of the Bible, when I think of our cancel culture, our cancel culture, our fear, our, our being able to speak truth in love, and the fear of speaking the truth in love, um, I, I can't help but, but think of the early church, the apostles, and the contrasting response. And I think of two things. I think of Romans 1, um, the whole issue of uh, the Bible, the power of the gospel, convictional courage, and cancel culture. Did I force the title of that sermon, Greg? Maybe. <laughs> Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is that true? Can we say it? Can we live it? Yes, brothers and sisters, we can. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For it is the power of the gospel for salvation, and we are not ashamed of that. Do we still trust that? Do we still trust that it's the, it's the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to change lives, including yours, including mine? It's not your oratorical gift. It's not your intellectual capacity. It's the Word of God. 
And sometimes I think we, we as preachers and teachers, we can forget that. It doesn't mean that we become lazy in our preparation. It doesn't mean that we don't do our due diligence and our homework. It doesn't mean any of those things. We do, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, God the Holy Spirit is going to use God, the Holy Inspired Word, to transform lives. Do we still believe He will? That's my exhortation to all of us. It doesn't matter if we're post-Christian, if we're pre-Christian. It doesn't matter. God has a divine means by which he changes lives. And that, I think of Acts chapter 5. And of course, the apostles are teaching. They're exhorted not to teach. They're thrown in prison. They're miraculously released. And what do they do? They're preaching again. And so then the, 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 the uh, officials are told they're out there preaching again. And so they're dragged in again, right? And here's then uh, in 39b. They, so so they, they took his advice. This is, remember, Gamaliel. This is uh, the, 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 uh, just, you might be working against God, he's saying. And anyway, so they took his advice, the Jews. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they're going to... Just so you know, the rest of the text is going to say, and they walked away sheepishly, promising never to do it again. No, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Brothers and sisters, are we at that point? Are we at a point of rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name? Because we're in a day now where there is no cultural capital to identifying as a Christian. In fact, there's a cultural cost. There's a cost. And will we rejoice? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's sort of like, okay, try again. Try again. And friends, we need to encourage each other to remain steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's why. So this, I mean, we can end right here uh, with an exhortation and plea. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful. Um. You know, this, uh, uh, let me just describe it in this way. It, it's described as two principles of theology. Two principles of theology. One is Scripture. The other is God. All that to say in this, uh, to summarize it, you cannot separate God and His Word. You can't separate God and His Word. They go together. And that, that's, in essence, what's being said here. So, Uh, Scripture is foundational, how we know God, right? How do we know anything? Well, Scripture is foundational for that and uh, for knowing God and theology, and there's no true knowledge of God or theology apart from Scripture. But then he talks about God, or the the reformers, uh, uh, post-reformers, God is the objective ground of theology without whom there would be no revelation or theology. So God and his word go hand in hand. You can't extricate them. You can't extricate them. And we'll talk tomorrow about inerrancy and infallibility. And in sum, 
I, I will just tell you the difference now. Some have concluded historically, and I think it's inaccurate, but, but they will conclude that inerrancy is the stronger term and infallibility is the weaker term. Is that what you know, or is that what you've heard, John? You, okay. Um, well, in, in the fuller days of the 1960s, when they were moving towards a limited view of inerrancy, kind of oxymoronic, I get it, yeah, I know. Uh, is it inerrant or not? Yeah, limited view of inerrancy, yeah. Well, all that to say, they were saying that they could affirm a statement of faith with mental reservation. Friends, that's why we have the language regarding our statement of faith for all of those of you who are credentialed that we affirm it without mental reservation. Because Ken Conser, who was a part of those discussions in the 1960s when Fuller was going liberal, theologically liberal, or moving more in that direction against the inerrancy of the Bible, Ken Conser was a part of those discussions and when we uh, implemented the five-year reaffirmation in the EFCA, the Board of Ministerial Standing, Ken Conser was serving on the Board of Ministerial Standing, providing that good, godly wisdom. This is how you should state this, and this is why. He lived through some of that stuff without mental reservation. So all that to say, w when we talk then about inerrancy and infallibility, that we affirm and by the way, at Fuller, they, they could affirm infallibility. That is to say, it's not, it's not prone to error is how they would use that expression. And, and they, they said, we can affirm that. We, we can affirm that the Bible's not prone to error, but, but it's not necessarily inerrant. That is, without error. However, they co-opted the term. Infallibility is grounded in the character and the, in the nature of God. Just what we talk about here. Because it is God's word, it is infallible. Does God lie? God does not lie. He is not a man that he should lie, nor a son man that he should repent. Has he spoken and will he not make it go? Numbers 23, 19. I mean, that's, that's what, what, what he says about himself. So because, because it is God's word, it cannot err. It's infallible. And the result then of this revealed word that we have in the Bible, it is without error. So inerrancy, the without errorness of the Bible is grounded in what? infallibility. Infallibility results in what? Inerrancy. They go hand in hand together. And, and infallibility, they're both grounded in, 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 in who God is, right? God and his word. God and his word. You can't extricate them. And because it's God speaking, it's infallible. And because God speaking is recorded, it is inerrant. Okay? We'll look at that a little bit uh, more tomorrow. And this is then uh, what is said. Both are necessary. Without God, there can be no genuine or authoritative word concerning God. That is no theology. And without the scriptural revelation, there can be no genuine or authoritative word concerning God. And again, no theology. And so this becomes uh, significant for us as we, as we think about this. Now, uh, I'm not going to go through uh, what is written in evangelical convictions. How many have read evangelical convictions? Yep, that's why. We're not going to go through it. Um, there, there's, you can read Article 2. We're, by the way, we're working on a second edition of Evangelical Convictions in light of uh, the decision last summer at the conference. We have completed Article 9. We started with that one because that's the most significant one to update, right? Um, and so that has been updated. We're going to post it on the web uh, um, as a standalone. Um, the rest of Evangelical Convictions is still pertinent, but we are updating the whole thing uh, to a second edition. Um, but Article 9 is done. It'll be posted on the website so that it can be accessed, uh, especially for those pursuing credentialing. 
Um, and, um, and then that will be inserted in the second edition uh, eventually when that comes. It'll also be included as an insert to any books that are first edition that are still sold. And so uh, that, it, that will be the updated uh, Article 9. But here, here's uh, how, how we spell out Article 2 in our Statement of Faith. Th this, is, uh, this is spelled out in uh, Evangelical Convictions. We affirm that God has spoken, uh, that he has spoken in the Scriptures, and that we, uh, both Old and New Testaments, this gets to the issue of uh, the mic that we had talked about just briefly, uh, and that is how we, how we put the, the Testaments together. There's one Bible, but there are two Testaments. And, and, and how we do that, we, we acknowledge that, we affirm that. We also affirm that God has spoken through the words of human authors. That is to say, it's not just, it's not just uh, that God has done this, but we also address the means or the process by which it was done. That is, God the Holy Spirit moved human beings and, and, and what they wrote then, it, it's, not, it's not absent their personhood, it's not absent who they are, but it's superintended by the Holy Spirit to ensure that at the end of the day, what they recorded was precisely what God wanted recorded and written. And so we, we affirm uh, through the words of human authors, and we also then affirm that the Bible is the verbally inspired word of God. Uh, verbally inspired. Uh, that is, it's not just ideas, it's not just thoughts, it's, it's every, uh, the, the whole thing. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away uh, is, is what uh, uh, we're informed in the scriptures. And we affirm that it's verbally inspired, the inspired word of God. And as you know, inspired does not just mean, wow, that was inspiring. Uh, inspired is a technical term, uh, and it, it it comes from the Second uh, uh, Timothy and First. Uh, I'm sorry, the Second Tim Timothy and Second Peter, um, and um, but th but that's what we affirm. We affirm that it's without error in the original writings. Um, now that's an interesting one. Um, uh, those of you that have been through councils, um, one of the questions you're asked is, so what about translations? Uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow. When I keep putting stuff off till tomorrow, we'll. <laughs> But that's the way that, that John has to bring me back, right? You just couldn't finish it all, right? You couldn't get everything done. Um, but in the original writings, and that is important, by the way. It is very important to affirm that, and uh, we can talk about that. Uh, we, we will talk about that tomorrow. The Bible is complete. That is to say there's nothing lacking. You know, we are not Roman Catholic in that we affirm the Apocrypha, the 13 additional books of the Apocrypha, nor are we Orthodox that affirm uh, a few more additional books uh, than the Apocrypha. We are not that, and there are reasons why. Uh, we can maybe look at that tomorrow um, with some questions, Q&A. If you have them, um, I would be glad to address some of those. But it's the canon. It's the canon of Scripture. And, 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 and how do we think about the canon of Scripture? And why? Why the canon of Scripture? Why these 66 books? And, and, and when was that decided? Did the church decide that? Or, or did, did, you know, what, what role is that the church, and that's a, that's a huge distinction between Protestants and Roman Catholics of how the canon came to be, right? Um, and then the Bible is authoritative. That is, we, we live, live under its authority. We do not, and th th I think to summarize that, would be the difference between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus wrote uh, or translated, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, put together a Greek New Testament in 1516. 1516, he put together a Greek New, Tex New Testament. And that Greek New Testament is what Luther used that really was, was to some degree, it was at the heart of the Reformation. And that is, when Luther went back to the original Greek text, 
over against the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, 405, Jerome. And that's, by the way, why the Apocrypha gets included. It's a longer story, but that's, that's part of the issue. But Luther realized that the Latin translation was inaccurate because repentance was penance. That is the fundamental difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And so, what is Luther's first of his 95 theses? When the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to repentance, he calls us to a life of repentance. Not penance. Repentance. Translations matter. Translations do matter. But, but how do translations then fit with the original writings? Right? It's authoritative. And then, then finally, our, our response to God's word. That is, that's the therefore. It's to be believed and trusted and obeyed. Any thoughts, questions thus far, comments? Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break. So we'll be back in uh, 2.30. Uh,